0: What does it take to build a successful business from scratch? We're talking about going from nothing to six or even seven figures as a freelancer. Well, it's not one simple thing, but it's instead it's a lot of things, things like choosing a niche, encouraging referrals from your best clients to building multiple streams of revenue. Our guest for the 222nd episode of the Copywriter Club podcast is Brandy Mowles. Brandy has built a successful business by trying different things and leaning into the stuff that works the best for her. From her start as a VA to her role as a Facebook ads consultant and now as a coach and business strategist, she's taken a step-by-step approach to creating a business that works for her. We think you're going to like what she has to say.
1: But before we jump in with Brandy, this episode is brought to you by the Copywriter Accelerator our program for copywriters who want to build a solid business foundation for everything they do. Our members work through eight different modules together covering topics like branding, pricing, client management, and getting yourself in front of the right clients. If you've struggled to get traction in your business or you're making a change to the kinds of clients you want to work with or simply want to get better at your processes and the services you sell – You owe it to yourself to learn more at thecopywriteraccelerator.com.
0: So let's go to our interview with Brandy and find out how she got started in business.
2: I am a first-generation entrepreneur, I always like to say. I did the traditional route, the thing that I was supposed to do. I went to college and then decided I was going to go to law school with no intention of ever becoming a lawyer. I just had no idea what I was going to do after college. And then I found network marketing. And I really liked the idea that as a female, there was no glass ceilings, that I could go as quickly as I wanted, because one of the big things about law school that kept on like coming up is I wasn't part of the good old boys club, and that kind of rubbed me the wrong way. So I joined direct sales, spent six years of my life in there, and then when I was eight months pregnant with my daughter, I looked at my husband and said, This isn't what I'm supposed to be doing. And he was like, what are you talking about? I was top 1% of the company. I was like, it's just not right. I don't want to do this. And so I left everything behind and he was like, holy cow, what are you thinking? And I said, we'll figure it out. Well, my daughter turned five months old and it was time to figure it out. Like we had to figure it out. So I had used virtual assistants before in my direct sales business, but they sent out like birthday postcards and stuff. And I was like, oh Lord, I cannot send out... Postcards and I'm not a blogger. So what the heck am I supposed to do? And I found out that I could really use social media and run that for people. And so I started a virtual assistant business in marketing, just helping people with their social media, their emails, things like that. And that quickly turned into me running my own Facebook and Instagram ad business Four clients. And I scaled that business pretty quickly. In 10 months from starting my business, I hit six figures. And I had all these people asking me, like, how are you doing this with a baby and without a team? Because I never wanted to have an agency like that. I run a household, I run a child and a husband. So, you know, an agency, a team did not light me up. And I wanted to share that with other people. And for some reason, I was so hung up on doing a membership. And so that's when Serve Scale Soar was created, was May of 2019. So it was 10 months after I had started my business.
0: Wow. Okay. That, there's a lot to uh, to cover. I want to go all the way back, though, to your decision to go to law school. Why would somebody decide to go to law school with no intention of being an attorney? What were you expecting to get out of it?
2: So one of the things with me is I've always liked, I've always liked the most challenging teachers. I always liked the most challenging professors. I like doing things that looked challenging to other people. And I don't know if that's trying to prove something or whatever it is, but that's always been exciting. Well, in college, I went out to save the world. I was a history major, international relations with a minor in African studies. And then I found out like, It's really hard to save the world. And so I was looking at my degrees and I was like, what the heck am I going to do? And I did not want to be a high school teacher. I didn't want to go work in a museum. And so it was like, well, then you go to law school. And that was a challenge to do the applications, pass all the tests. And so I said, let's do a new challenge. Let's go to law school.
1: So, um, what did you learn? Did you what lessons did you learn from your time in law school? That I do not want to
2: work 80 hours <laughs> a week to pay good, good not a ton of money. I didn't want to work for other people. I think the big thing with law school is I proved to myself that I could do it. That was really important to me. But I also found out like that's when the first sparks of me knowing that women deserved better. And I didn't really realize it until I was in law school how women were paid less. And because I came from a background where pretty much all the women stay at home with their babies and take care of their family. And there's 100% nothing wrong with that. But I knew that that didn't want, I didn't want that to be specifically my story. And so, but I didn't realize there was this like gender gap in pay and stuff until I went to law school. And they're very blunt about it. Like you will work 10 times harder than a man to make partner. It's probably going to take you 30 to 40 years. And then you're going to sacrifice pretty much everything to get there. Now, that's not everyone's story. I was in Alabama. So I think that is a truer story than maybe other places in the country. But I think that's the biggest lesson I learned in law is that I wanted to help women do something. And at that time, I didn't know what that was. But also from a service provider standpoint, I know you always better have a contract.
0: Yeah, for sure. Okay, so moving forward from law school then into doing direct selling. Direct selling oftentimes gets a really bad name, sometimes for very good reasons. But I'm, I'm curious what you learned from your six-year experience there and you know how that applies to what you're doing today.
2: Yeah, and I'll be honest. I have now looking back at my experience, I'm not like super excited about everything I did, but I did learn a lot of lessons. One, I learned marketing. Like, holy cow, did I learn how to market? And I learned how to become really good at selling. I learned um, a lot about direct response marketing. And I'm so grateful for all of those lessons. I think the biggest lesson I took away, though, is how easily it is for us to be swept up and us to become our work and putting those titles into our worth and who we are when our work should not define who we are as people. And I think that is the biggest lesson I took out of direct sales. And that's what made me step away is because I was looking at the life I created and it was full of material things that I had never been used to, but I was wrapped up in my identity, was wrapped up in those things. And having a daughter, I knew that that's not what I wanted to do. And so I stepped away, but it was such a learning lesson. I mean, oh man, I can sell some products now.
1: How, I mean, how can we recognize that when that happens, when our identity becomes wrapped up in maybe not even just the stuff, I mean, especially for copywriters who are listening, maybe it's wrapped up in our achievements or in the title or um, in the identity that we want to have. How, how can we keep check on that and kind of call it out so we can make a change if needed?
2: Yeah, I think one of the biggest things I make sure that I always do is whenever I introduce myself, and one of my mentors actually pointed it out to me, is I always start with, I'm a wife, I'm a mom, I'm a business owner. And I always do it in that order because first and foremost, I am always a wife and a mom before a business owner, and I think that that just puts a check. But also when we start to feel like unworthy, if we get a bad email from a client or if a launch doesn't go the way we want and our worthiness as people starts to get wrapped up in that, I think that's a big sign that something's not in alignment and that you're, you're putting too much emphasis on what you do instead of who you are
0: okay yeah that that definitely makes sense so now I, I'm gonna keep moving up through like your business experience jumping to starting a VA business I get why but clearly you've done something that most VAs never do some of them don't want to do it but you know jumping from you know a place where you're you're doing VA work to making six figures let's dive into that how did you do it
2: Yeah, I think the big thing was I got super specific on what services I was going to offer. So when I first started, it was like doing everything, charging hourly, like just taking anyone that came to me. And that doesn't serve us to, it will until you get to a certain point. And then you're going to max out on hours. You're going to max out on clients and you're not going to be at the place where you want to income wise. So as soon as I stopped working with everyone, raised my prices and got super specific on what I was going to do. So for me, it was Facebook and Instagram ads, but it wasn't just that it was Facebook and Instagram ads for course creators who were launching because I found that that was my sweet spot. And so I got so specific that when someone said, Oh, you're launching a course, you have to go find Brandy. Like it wasn't just I'm and for your listeners, copywriter, like there's so many copywriters, but who are you serving or how specifically? Are you serving them? And so soon as people can start remembering what you do very quickly and associating your name with what you do, holy cow, the floodgates just open up. And I always led with value. So instead of when you see someone in a Facebook group say, hey, I'm looking for a copywriter and just posting like, here's my website, I would make a video on my phone. And it would just say like, Hey, my name's Brainy and gave them like a quick thing. It was less than 30 seconds. And I would post it in the comment and be like, I made this quick video for you. So adding that value from the beginning served me very, very well with getting clients.
0: So more specifically, because it, it obviously just choosing a niche isn't enough. You've got to get known for that. It was the videos that you were sending out that got you known as the, the VA to help with you know, course creators who are launching or were you doing even more beyond that?
2: I think it's getting results for your clients. It is showing up in these Facebook groups in a more way, like, because people will search. Not everyone posts. People use that search function if you're using Facebook groups and they'll see like Facebook ads for me, example, and they would search. And of course they're going to go to the person who created a video because it stands out from anyone else. And then having those results to back that up I think served me so, so well. And then asking my clients for referrals. I was never afraid to ask them if they knew someone who needed my help.
1: So you were actually posting the video in the Facebook thread when somebody had a question. You were just dropping the link in that thread. You weren't necessarily sending them a, a private message. No,
2: I was uploading the video right there on the thread.
1: Smart. Okay, cool. And I'm just wondering. You know, we we talk about niching a lot too, and clearly, it's it's worked well for you. It works well for copywriters. Do you think there was a grace period in there before you really specialize, where you almost need to? work all the projects, work all the crazy, you know, hourly and like take this, take that to figure it out. This is kind of the ongoing conversation we have with copywriters who are really new and are kind of like, well, I don't even know what I want to specialize in. I'm just so new. Um, How, what do you teach about that? Or how, how do you view that? And especially with newer copywriters?
2: Yeah. So I think the first thing is we should never be charging hourly. I just don't think any of us should work hourly because once we start it, it's like a hard cycle to break. So even like new copywriters, new service providers, but you can start a little bit broader and then niche down. But I say the quicker you do that, the better, because I rather someone start niching down sooner and then decide like they want to work with another industry and pivot then start super, super broad and get stuck doing all these things. Because I think sometimes we think that we're stuck. And that's the great thing about the online business is we can pivot. This is not a nine to five. We don't have a boss telling us you have to only do this one project. We can always pivot. So I started out my ad business working with local businesses and then quickly was like, I don't like this. I'm going to try out an online business. Tried it out, fell in love with it and quickly niche down. It was a like 60-day period. So I don't think that it needs to go out further. And I think the big thing is just always remember you can pivot and change your mind at any point.
0: Yeah, I think that's such fantastic advice. I think so many people get afraid to choose a niche because they're worried that they've locked themselves in now for their rest of their career or even for a year or two. And it's so easy to try new things and even experiment while you're in a niche, experiment with other niches that you might want to play around in before you pivot
2: absolutely
0: okay so you mentioned the referral uh, asking for referrals from your clients could you walk us through the script of how that worked as you I mean I know you probably weren't working from an actual script but as you reached out to clients asking for referrals at what point of the project did you do it how did you make the ask and you know maybe some of the results that you got
2: yeah. So a lot of the times I had a survey that went out to my clients. It was like, let me know how I'm doing. And it was a survey. Well, one of the questions in the survey is, do you know about my referral program? And of course they would say no, but that opened up cause I never told them. So that opened up this like moment where I could say like, Hey, I noticed that you put that you didn't know about my referral program. Let me tell you what that looks like. And do you have anyone in mind that may be interested in my services? I would love for us to have a win-win conversation.
0: And so what was the referral program?
2: It changed all the time. Like I never had anything set in stone because as my business grew, the referral program changed. So I always did what felt comfortable to me. So if that specific client, let's say that their contract was like $2,000 a month Then I would do like $100 or $200 that I would send them. And then if a client was like a $10,000 client, you know, it was like, it would change, but I never had anything set in stone. It was kind of also thinking about who are these people connected to? Because if it's someone that I know that they have really well connections that are going to do really well, that will probably sign on longer that referral bonus is probably going to be a little juicier than one of my clients who maybe is just getting started. I don't know if her friends are going to be super ideal. I still want to give her a place to win, but it may not be the same juiciness as one of my top tier clients.
0: So you were basically customizing a referral fee and and then just using that to start the, the conversation about who they might know that you could help.
1: Yes. Yes. And this is getting into the weeds, but I love the idea of asking in the survey, you know, do you know about the program? Cool. I'll tell you. So would you send a video follow up or when would you fill them in? Was it on a phone call? Was it just a a quick email, you know, a day later?
2: Yeah. So I usually, I become good friends with my clients. Like I just create a relationship. We're going to work together. We're going to get to know each other. We might as well also be friends. And so most of my clients, because of that relationship, I could send it in a message on Slack. I could send it in a box. I could send it over an Instagram message. And it just felt like two friends hanging out, like trying to help each other win.
1: Okay, cool. And can we talk about the breakdown of... Uh, that that stage in your business when you were working out with Facebook ads, Instagram ads, uh, to achieve the six figures you mentioned, launch projects. So was it more project based work? Was it? Did you have r- multiple retainers? How did you how did you stack up stack up the clients? Stack up the money uh, to achieve that in a way that worked for you?
2: Right. So my first ten months of business, it was the first six months before I niched down to Facebook ads, I did 25,000. Then from January to May, I finished it up and I did over a hundred thousand or adding that up. So I think it was like 80,000 between January and May. And so in that beginning part of January, February, March, I still had social media clients that were on retainer because they were under contract. And so I was still doing that. But starting in January of 2019, I stopped taking any clients that weren't Facebook ad clients, and that's when I started offering the service. Well, then come April, I had a $19,000 month, and I only had Facebook ad clients. Most of them were on a three-month retainer at that point because we did two months of lead generation, and then their third month was a launch. Now, moving forward after that, I think it was July, I only started taking project-based clients, which we would just work together for a launch, and then I wouldn't see them again until their next launch. And so that is how I like to work because I found out that I didn't like the day-to-day of the ads because there wasn't like a ton to do, but I love the adrenaline from the launch, and that's where I could really support them in making a bigger impact.
0: Will you talk through what those projects looked like? How big were they? What are the kinds of deliverables that you were doing for that, that project fee, um, you know, $10,000, $15,000 project fee? What did that all look like?
2: Yeah. So there's ad managers that do all different things. I have always been the one who does the graphics, the copy, and the management. Now, not as my business grew and I was working with more business owners who had you know full-on teams, I didn't always have to do all of that. But and especially if they had a copywriter, I much rather had the copywriter write the ad copy than me. And so but for the most part, it was all inclusive. And I was there with them as kind of like a back call. So it wasn't just like me running their ads. But if they were like, we're not getting enough leads, I was in there supporting them and saying like, hey, your conversion rate on your webinar registration page, we could do this one tweak and it would probably go up. So I was an ad manager, but I was everything from that traffic to the registration page. I was coming up with the full strategy for the ads. So I was anything doing with the ads. It was all on me.
1: Seems like it could be a really good opportunity for copywriters to build relationships with Facebook ad managers to get steady work um, from these referral partners. Uh, Could you speak to that and what uh, at least at that time would have attracted you to working with a couple of copywriters and sending consistent work to those copywriters, you know, what, what a copywriter need to do to kind of get, build that trust and and get the attention of a Facebook ad manager.
2: It's so funny you say that because this morning in my program, we always do wins Wednesday and I was reading through them and it was three of them that have been like this. They've just been this referral machine for each other and they all do different things. One's an OBM, one's a copywriter and one's an ad manager And I think the copywriter may do like all the funnel copy as well. So emails funnel and then the other one's an ad manager and the other one's an OBM. So they refer each other and now they have this amazing ecosystem of just working together, but they're all making their own money. There's no like, they don't pay each other to refer each other. It's just like you help me, I'll help you, and it's this beautiful like ecosystem. And I think that anytime a copywriter could get with a funnel builder or an ads manager and they just like help each other, I think that's magical because a lot of time our clients think that we're like the best at everything and we're not. I am an ads manager, I am not the best copywriter. And I know people who are amazing copywriters, but they could not get inside and run a Facebook ad if they tried. So I think anytime we can find those people who are serving the same clientele as us and just work together, I think it's magic.
0: So before we jump to the next pivot in your business, you know, I'm I'm wondering. Okay, I'm a copywriter. I kind of want to build the same sort of business that I've heard Brandy talk about. Maybe not as uh, a VA or an ads manager, but I want that level of engagement with my clients. In addition to choosing a niche, in addition to, you know, solving problems in public and offering value, is there something else that I should be considering as I start to build towards that six-figure level?
2: Yes, that is your onboarding system. And so this is one of those areas that people like forget about. But the first 24 hours someone interacts with you is the most important. Some people say it's after they sign the contract. I think it's the moment that they wanted to book a call with you, like a sales call, a discovery call, whatever you call it. How easy is that process? Are you saying like, hey, I have this date, this date, this date. What works for you? Or are you sending them to a link? Once they get the link, like what does that look like afterwards? Is the process easy? Is it simple? Are they having to get back to you? Are you sending reminders? And then once you get off that sales call and you send their proposal, how quickly are you getting them the proposal? How quickly are you getting invoices? And then once they make that big decision to work with you, this is a big scary decision for people to work with service providers. Some of them have been burned before. Some of them, this is the first time they're investing in another person. And so what does that next 24 hours look like? I like to make sure that they have something in their hands that shows that I care. So even if that's just their questionnaire for them to have, I like to use Bonjuro, which is a free app and send them just a quick video that says, like, hey, I'm so excited we're working together. I just sent you over your questionnaire. Once I get that back, we're going to schedule your kickoff call and your business is my top priority now. And just making them feel like, whew, I made the right decision because that first 24 hours is the most important time when working with a new client.
1: That's such a great reminder. And, and you're right. It's, it's the 24 hours after initial inquiry and then also after the actual payment and, and processing uh, that are so critical for us. All right, let's stop for a couple minutes to talk about a couple of ideas that Brandy mentioned that really stood out to us. Rob, what stood out to you?
0: So uh, there are a couple of things that uh, jumped out, you know, going back to, you know, some of the things that she said about understanding where her worth comes from was one of the things I was like, oh, yeah, that's actually really important. She mentioned that she doesn't get hung up on failures in business because she knows that her worth comes from being a wife and a mom first. and. Uh, you know, I know there are a lot of us that you know the personal life is really where self worth comes from, and and what roots us to the things that we do. So that when things don't go right in our business, it's not that big a deal. It doesn't, you know, if a, a launch fails or if you know clients want more revisions than what we're used to, or they fire us or, you know, all those kinds of things that can happen in business. When that stuff happens, it does not mean that we're less of a person. And I know not everybody gets their value from being, you know, a a parent or a partner, but just simply knowing that whatever it is that we are intrinsically as humans is, is valuable, regardless of whether clients like us or not. It has no reflection on our worth and it has no reflection in most cases about our value as copywriters. You know, as long as we're able to deliver value for our clients, um, just because we don't click with one client doesn't mean that we're not good at what we do. So and that's kind of a, a weird thing maybe to pull out, but I think it's something that's nice to be reminded of occasionally.
1: Where do you get your worth from, Rob?
0: Yeah, that's that's a good question. But I mean, I'm a, I'm a dad and uh, love spending time with my kids. I'm a husband and love my wife. And then the personal things that I do in my time, you know, so spending time on my bike and, you know, with friends, that's, that's where it comes for me. How about you? Do you, uh, do you see yourself as all in on business?
1: It's all in. It's business or break or uh, all in on business. Yeah. That's right. No, it's family. Yeah, Yeah, this has to succeed. No, it's, I mean, definitely the family stuff, which you've already mentioned. Uh, But yeah, I think I also, like, I see my worth as a creative. So I kind of, it's broader than even copywriting. Um, I guess you can say you see your worth as a writer. And so even if copywriting doesn't work out or you have a bad project, doesn't, break your image of yourself as a writer um, and a creative and someone who enjoys, you know, reading and learning. So I think those, not necessarily hobbies, but other identities that we hold can help during hard times or if there's any negativity.
0: Yeah. I mean, we spend so much time in business that it starts to feel like the thing that gives us value. And Again, it's just important to remember that that's not where all value comes from. In fact, it may not even be where most of our value comes from.
1: Right. Yeah.
0: So what else stood out to you?
1: Okay. So um, I love what uh, Brandy shared about finding clients and building her business through providing value uh, in comments and Facebook groups, which we've talked about before. Uh, But what Brandy does that I love is she she'll actually answer questions and record a quick video, maybe 30 seconds, and post the video in the comment thread to answer that question, which you know you can do anywhere. right? You don't have to necessarily do that on Facebook. But it's such a great way to stand out and to look at any social media platform as a search engine where people are actively, especially in Facebook groups, people are going in there, they have questions, they're looking for answers. And so They're searching and they find the question that you're addressing, and then they scan all the comments and they see one video. They're probably going to watch that video. And I think that's a lot better than just responding or sending private messages, which again, we've talked about that before. So I just think it clearly worked for her and it's worth considering if you are struggling to find clients or to show value. in the, the market.
0: Yeah, it's definitely a great way to stand out, assuming that the groups that you're in allow for video comments, that, that kind of thing. Obviously, you'd want to stay within the rules, but it's it, it's going to stand out against a, another comment. And like you said, it's going to be really different from a private message, which is the absolute worst way to respond to things in Facebook. You want to solve problems publicly. You want people to see that you're an expert when they're solving other people's problems. That's one way to build trust when you're in Facebook groups or on LinkedIn, whatever, and then taking people to a direct message. You might be thinking, oh, I can close a sale here. But what you're really doing is cutting off a potential for however many other people see the thing that you're doing to also close a sale with you.
1: Yes. And uh, something else that Brandy shared that was really uh, smart and we could all copy, right, is the, her referral program that she – when she um, offboards clients, she sends them a survey and one of the questions is, do you know about my referral program? And probably most people, most clients say no, but it gives her an opportunity to drop and plant that seed and then follow up with them and say, hey, you didn't know about it, but here, let me tell you about it. And so I think it's referral, asking for referrals um, is challenging for a lot of us. We we aren't doing it. Most of us are not doing it. Um, So this kind of makes it easy to hack the system and to insert it and possibly get referrals without having to directly ask for it out of the blue.
0: Yeah, that's exactly why I like this approach. She doesn't really have a system. And I know we've talked in you know our think tank group and with others that, you know, the referrals are really important and you need to be asking for them. This just is a really easy way to open up the conversation so that somebody actually is approaching you saying, hey, wait a second, I might have somebody to refer to you, you know, what does that referral program look like for you? And whether you end up giving somebody, you know, something as simple as a a Starbucks gift card or whether you give them a percentage of the sale, whatever that looks like is entirely up to you. But I love that it flips the script a little bit so that your client is actually asking you instead of going the other way around. I, I think it's brilliant.
1: Yes. And uh, she also shared the importance of the first 24 hours of interaction with a new client, and you know so we, we kind of know this, but it was such a great reminder that especially with a prospect uh, related to a sales call, you know, as soon as you have that sales call, those first 24 hours are critical. Like, what is the follow up? Do they know what's happening next? Are they getting any information they need from you, or getting information from them? Is are you sending the proposal? Is there a follow up call? And then. And also, once you book um, or land a project and get the yes, what happens during those 24 hours? And I think that's actually probably where a lot of us might drop the ball once we get the yes and the approval for our project. It's like, great. Okay, cool. I know I'm going to start with this client, but I'm not necessarily sending anything immediately so she, you know, she shared the idea of sending a quick video, but when you have a new client that accepts your proposal, that's something I've started doing. Cause it's so easy. Like there's no reason you can't record an informal 30 second video for new clients. So that's one way you can just easily do something to keep them excited and engaged and remind them that they made a good decision.
0: Yeah, this was something that when Brandy was talking about it, it was one of those things I was like, "Ugh, I need to do this better. And I'm even thinking about things that when we do things together, Kira and the Copywriter Club, you know, sometimes we're uh, a little slow, sometimes welcoming people to, you know, the underground or, or whatnot. So uh, making sure that that first 24 hours is really solid, it's really the time where you're confirming the purchase, you know, where somebody has just given you money and said, Hey, I need help with my copy. I think you're the right person to do it. Here's, you know, five thousand dollars or five hundred dollars, whatever that amount is, and they don't hear from you, you know, there's, you know, the buyer's remorse starts to happen, maybe some doubt creeps in. So it's really smart to follow up and say, I'm on this. Uh, you know, here's what the relationship looks like or just starting, you know, the the project in some way that confirms that purchase intent and helps people feel really good about what why they're moving forward with you. Let's go back to our interview with Brandy and talk a little bit about one of our favorite topics lately, and that's mindset.
1: I would also like to ask you about this time period before you pivoted and what investments you were making during that time, because we talked about what you were doing, uh, all the smart tactics um, that helped you hit those six figures. But what was happening behind the scenes mindset-wise during that time? How were you working on your mindset? How was kind of like the, the inner game? And what were you investing in to help you during that time?
2: I will tell you at that time, there wasn't much mindset work. It was kind of like a necessity. Like My family needs this. I'm doing the dang thing. And at that point, I didn't have any help. So I had a baby that like slept on me 24-7 for the majority of the first part of my business. Now, things have definitely changed since then, but there wasn't any mindset necessarily. It was more of a necessity at that point. However, I was someone who... I didn't like to invest in little things. Like if it was a hundred dollar course or something like that, I wanted to invest in something that was going to move the needle that I knew that I had to have. And that thing was a, I think a mutual friend of ours. He had a Facebook ad course for managers at that point. And I invested $3,000 and it's the most I'd ever invested in an online course or anything. And I said, I'm giving myself four weeks to get through this thing. And then it's going to take me three clients because I was I was like, I can charge $1,000 just getting started for a client. said, so I have to get three clients to pay this back. And I finished the course. It did take me five weeks. It was super robust. And then I got my first clients. And in my first month, I paid it off. So that's how I went into it is, is this going to get me a return on my investment? And what do I need to do on my part to make sure it does?
1: Okay. Let's talk about the pivot. Um, so, Uh, what triggered that pivot in your business? You have this successful six-figure business and then you build the membership. Um, what, What triggered you to build the membership? It sounds like people were asking you, hey, how did you do this? So maybe that's part of the answer, but what triggered it? And then what did it look like when you decided, I'm gonna create this membership? What were the first few steps?
2: The funny thing is I went into my virtual assistant business with this like gut feeling. I can remember it saying like, this is not it, but this is my stepping stone. I don't know what I wanted to do, but I just had this gut feeling. And it took me until May when people did start coming to me and they were like, Brandy, when are you going to do something? Can you help us? Like, we really want to know how to do this, what you're doing without a team, like your systems, all that kind of stuff. And so that really did propel me into creating the membership. I don't tell this story a lot, but it That year in January, I went through and created this whole beautiful funnel. It was a $47 offer, thinking like it was gonna change my life. And three people bought it and I like just gave up and quit and was like, I'm never creating another product again. I can make so much more money with my services. But for some reason, when people started coming to me with this, it was something that I was so passionate about and really wanted to help people and so i was like okay we're gonna do this and even if no one purchases i'm committing to making this thing work because i was so stinking passionate about it
0: so what did it take to then go from three people bought to you know where you are today like what did you do to turn the dials pull the levers you know what were you doing in order to get your name out there people interested people buying
2: yeah so that thing in january that only three people bought was all about facebook ads And I was doing that on the day to day and it didn't light me up, but helping other moms create freedom and flexibility, like lit me up. So I think that was the big thing, finding something, not because I thought I could sell it, but something I was truly passionate about. And so that beta, I had 400 people on my email list. Half of them were people for my services. And I had 400 people on Instagram. And I did what was called guerrilla marketing. That's what I've always called it, where I just got in the DMs and voicemail people and was like, hey, you've asked me these questions before. I'm putting together a program. Nothing's there, but I promise it's going to be great. And I'll do a one-on-one call with you, but just give me a chance for 30 days and see what happens. And so 23 people joined And I still didn't worry about my email list. I still didn't worry about posting on social. But then I went into my first launch where I did the webinar, the ads, all of that. And from there, it was a $43,000 launch. And then it just snowballed. Even to this day, I don't have a big audience because I don't focus on social. I focus on those needle movers. And I think launching is the best needle mover because you see a whole bunch of people in a very short amount of time and you can figure out really quick what's working and what's not.
0: Okay, so I want to ask a couple of questions just the details of the launch that you did. The price point was uh, how much?
2: Yeah, so uh, when I did not my beta, but my real launch, it was uh 797 for the year or $67 per month, but I did decide because of how juicy the content was that it was a year commitment cuz I also know business doesn't happen overnight. So it is a membership, there's monthly deliverables but it's 797 for the year or you can do break it up into 12 payments of $67. You don't really get a discount for paying for the year.
0: And the month or the annual commitment, which is a really good idea. Okay. And then how big was your list when when you did that launch? 400. And did all of your sales come from your list or were you doing affiliates or you know sharing it in other ways?
2: So Um, I think only three people actually signed up for my list, my webinar, I added 700 people to my launch list during the webinar. So I was running ads, I spent $2,000 on ads, because I took the money from my beta, put it towards my webinar launch spent $2,000 on ads. And then that resulted in it was pretty much all cold traffic, because I didn't have an audience.
0: Okay, cool. And then uh, how often would you launch after that? Was it just once a year or you know, how did you continue to grow you know, moving forward?
2: Yeah. So then I launched October of last year. So 2019, October, that launch. And then I launched in February, which was kind of a flop of a launch. We had a troll and this whole thing. And then I just launched again. So in 2019, I launched... Twice. And then in 2020, I've launched twice with a webinar, but I do have an evergreen that runs in the background, but there is a true deadline to it. But the majority of all my people come in during the launch.
0: Okay. That makes sense.
2: Interesting. Okay. So, um, how many members are in now? We have 325 With um, the really cool thing is I just love my members so much and we're at a 97% retention. So even though their years have come up, they continue to renew, which is really cool. That's awesome. Yeah.
1: So let's talk. There's a lot we want to talk about. I mean, we have a membership, as you know, so (laughs) selfishly, this is just for us. Um, But we know of a lot of copywriters who are building their own memberships as well. Uh, So I would like to hear more about the needle movers that you mentioned. I mean, you have mentioned that a couple of times. Uh, you said launching was the needle mover for you. What else could be a needle mover for a copywriter who wants to build out this program product side of their business and kind of branch out from services other than launching and kind of building that momentum and testing during a launch? What else could be a big needle mover?
2: I think always focusing on the right things at the right time. So many times we hear like, you have to be on social, you have to be growing and like have this killer opt-in. You have to have all these things like you need to bring in JV partners. You need to do this. You need to do that. And it's so overwhelming. And then we try to do it all and it doesn't work because we're so overwhelmed. We can't even focus on just showing up for our people. So I think it's really getting clear on what are the right steps at the right time for you. But the other thing is not making big drastic changes to your launch. I've been doing the same webinar launch since I first launched Serve Scale Store. It's the same launch. Each time I just find one thing to change to see if it makes a difference. And it did, like this last launch, all we did was change a few things in our sales page and we went from a 6% conversion lead to sale to a 10% conversion lead to sale. And that's a 4% increase on the same launch list. That's bananas. Like just making small changes. And the fact that I know that's exactly what made the change. It's not like I changed 10 things and then was like, wait, what actually made the difference? I'm very in tune with what's actually making the difference.
0: And will you tell us, you know, some of those, like be really specific on some of those changes?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, with the sales page, it just, I've always relied on my webinar because my webinar converts so well. And then February we had a troll and my webinar conversion rate went from 22%, which I know is crazy down to 5%. Whoa.
0: Yeah, so wait, tell us more tell, about yeah. that. Tell like, us
2: about the troll. Who,
0: who is the troll and what did he do? Who is the troll? do?
2: Well, it's just like one of those things. I have always been like, oh, I don't get mean comments on my ads or anything like that. And I think in February, I just needed a humble check and I got my humble check. Oh, no. And, and it was nasty. And So they were just in, you know, like this is all fluff and stuff. And we let that stuff go to our head because it's like, Over 2,000 people have been to this webinar and only two people have complained. Like, I know it's not this, this is you, but they were just in the chat the whole time. We learned a lot. Now we know how to have a co-host so they can kick those people. Before that, I didn't know to have a co-host. So it was a learning lesson that needed to be had. But when you go from having a conversion of 22% down to 5%, then your sales page has to do all the work. And my sales page was garbage. I mean, I'll just be honest because I was like, who needs a great sales page when you have a great webinar? But what I found is this is something that needed to be a priority. So I redid my full sales page to make it a true like meaty sales page where someone would wanna join my program even if they didn't watch the webinar. And it made a huge difference. But another small tweak is on my conversions for clients, my ad manager course, we made one change, like the tiniest change this time And we saw a 3% increase in conversion. And it was that the table before, I just had your regular like, here's click this button to purchase at this price if you wanna pay in full or discount. This time I made the like this pricing table in Canva that really showed all the perks of paying in full. And we had 42% of people pay in full versus 23%. And so that to me is like, I'll take that all day, every day, but it's just making those one tweak. So I'm not guessing what could have it been. It was literally that one thing because that's the only thing that changed.
1: So uh, let's go back to the, the troll, not to focus on the troll, but I think it's one of those, like it's a weird thing that we don't really prepare for and we're not really used to someone just showing up and sabotaging a webinar and and really like killing a business, a part of your business. You mentioned, you know, to avoid a situation like that. Having a co-host in the webinar makes sense so they can kick that person out. Is there anything else in general, because you've dealt with this one troll, that we should be aware of as we're building an online businesses that are so easily basically like impacted by trolls um, and we're not really prepared for it. What could we do to just be better prepared?
2: Yeah. So I think one, if you're doing webinars, just make sure someone's there to kick them. Like we had one this last time and before the webinar, we actually had a team meeting and I was like, these are the things that I'll allow. These are the things I won't. If any of these things come up, no warning, they're gone. So we had someone, no warning, they got kicked. And, I'm good with that because it's distracting and it's my business. So I could care less if I kick them or not. So they're gone. But then you get these email, like we got a follow-up email from this person. And one thing I think that's so important for our mindset is when you have someone else that manages your inbox, this goes for failed payments and everything. Like we shouldn't be doing that. You need someone else to do all that kind of stuff because that's the negative stuff. And so with that, she, my team member messaged me and was like, we have this message do you want to respond? It's from the girl. And I was like, no, let me go read it. I'll respond because I knew this needed to be a learning lesson. And it was just nasty. Like you're what's wrong with this industry. This was all fluff, no teaching, blah, blah, blah. And I went and pulled our numbers because for me, I like numbers because numbers don't have emotions. They're just numbers. And so whenever I'm feeling emotionally like drained by someone or something, someone said or even if a launch isn't going the way I like, I like to go look at the numbers. And so I went and looked how many people had been through our webinar at that point. And it was over 2000 people. I think it was actually closer to four. And I looked through it and I was like, Janessa, how many times have we had an email come through? And she said, we've had two ever. And I said, okay. And so for me, that showed that that was not me. That was on her. So I just responded very nicely. And I said, you know, I wish you all the success in your business. But one of my mentors always told me that I'll never take advice from someone who I wouldn't want to trade places with. And today I'm going to live through that advice. I wish you all the success, Brandy. And I think it's just releasing that and that we just have to love people where they are and not internalize that. But go look at your numbers. I think whenever we can step back and just look at our numbers, it tells a better story than we tell ourselves.
1: That's such a good idea and we've we've talked about you know having positive um, you know email folders where you can check all your testimonials and all your positive feedback from clients which I think is also important but I love just keeping it simple like look at the numbers the numbers don't lie they don't uh, have emotion so I think that's that's great advice um, I'd also like to hear about just more general advice for webinar launches because clearly, you know, beyond dealing with trolls, but clearly you've, you've figured it out. And I, I like the idea of changing one element every time you launch, keeping it simple. Any other advice for what's working today with webinar launches that could help copywriters who are launching their own products or who are working on client launches and client webinar launches?
2: Yeah. So I always tell everyone, you always want to have the GIF effect. So I don't know about y'all, but when I'm scrolling through Instagram or Facebook and there's a GIF that's just like speaking to your soul, like I scrolled the other day and it was one and it was like, if you're reading this, you have a mom bun and you're in your pajamas. And I was like, oh my God, that's me. Like right now, are you like staring at me? And that's what I tell my clients. That's what I tell, you know, my students. I'm like, you want to always have the GIF effect When it comes to your launches, your sales pages, your emails, like you want to be so specific on who you're serving that you're speaking to their soul. Like they just think that this is for them and only them. And when you can do that, you can, uh, I mean, it's the, the game is on. Like you have just hit the jackpot.
0: Okay. So I want to take a step back uh, here again. And, you know, with this pivot that we've been talking about as you've changed your business, obviously there are changes in your approach, in your marketing, and uh, even in your mindset. So could you maybe talk us through a little bit about the differences in running a business at the level that you're at today where you're, we're talking multiple six figures versus that first six figure year?
2: Yeah. So we're talking seven figures. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, okay, so, so yeah, multiple six figures, right?
2: <laughs> and so um this year has been definitely a change because last year my business did 350,000, 210 of that came from my one-on-one services. So the majority of that was me working one-on-one, where this year in 2020 we've done over a million so far and only 30% of that has come from not even 30%. We're looking at like of that has come from my services. So it's a very different landscape. And to navigate that has been fun, but it's definitely came with its challenges. My team is much bigger. Before with my ad business, it was just me. And still today, I serve clients and it's just me running that side. But the course creator side of me, it's much different. I have a team that I delegate. I show up on Mondays. Um, Before I was doing like find time and do it when you can. Now it's like I have a job. I show up Monday morning at 9, I leave at 3.30, and I check out on Thursdays at 4. So it feels much more like I would say I'm a grown-up now. And so it definitely looks different. The mindset about like being open to accepting money, and money doesn't change us, it amplifies us. Um, just changing the mindset around money and the impact that we can have when we make more money has definitely been a big thing. And just being so transparent and open. I have never been so open in my life before. I've always built walls up. And this year, I let all those walls down. And I was like, I'm so sick of people saying that they have seven figure businesses and not telling us what that means. And so I said, January 1st of this year, I was like, y'all, I'm going to do a million. I don't think anyone believes me, but I'm going to do a million. And every single month, I'm going to show up and tell you what my revenue was, what my cash flow was, what my expenses were, and any challenges or any lessons I learned. And I've showed up every single month for my audience. And I think that they have so appreciated it. And I know that I have grown so much because I've been so much more open.
1: So let's, Amy, I'm sure there are copywriters listening. Um, Maybe not all of them, but some who are like, Wow, how, I mean, you did that so quickly that jump from most of your business coming from client work to a smaller portion and building out this entirely different business. Um, I want to do that too. And so, for anyone who is interested in doing that or following a similar path, what would you say are the three, you know, two to three most critical components involved in making a rapid Change or shift like that in a business? I mean, you already mentioned a couple as far as like working on your money mindset, letting the walls down. Um, What are some tactical changes we really need to think about if we want to make that type of shift?
2: Yeah. So the first one is know that your service based business can fund your lifestyle and your passion project. So I call my course out of my business when I was starting at my passion project it needs to fund that because they don't necessarily start rolling in the money right off the bat. It's not like services where you get paid as soon as you start doing it. Sometimes it takes like time to get these things going. There's more overhead with courses and memberships and things like that. So don't think like, oh, I'm going to phase out all my clients right now or anything like that. Use that as a way to feed your family. Use it as a way to fund your passion project. And then I would say that's the first thing is like, make sure that, You have like you're not financially strapped and stressed about where the money's coming from and stuff like that. I don't think it serves us just to drop all of our clients to start a course or membership. The second thing is get clarity on what you want out of your life. I think so many times we think like, oh, I want this business. I want this business. But what do you want your life to look like first? And then how can your business support that? So I always come at it January. I was like, not only did I say I wanted a million dollar business, but I also said I was only going to work four day work weeks because I found myself working Monday through Sunday and get my daughter saying, get off phone, mommy. And I didn't want that to be my story this year. And I didn't know what 2020 was going to look like, but in January I said that, and that's been true for pretty much every Friday I've taken off. So I like to look at my life first. What do I want out of my lifestyle? How much money do I want to bring into my life? How much do I want to donate? All of those things. And then how can my business support that and really take inventory of like, how do I need to show up in my business? How much does my course need to make? How much do I need to make as a service provider? Like really evaluating those things. I would say that that's the second thing. And then the third thing is you just have to be willing not to give up. Like we had a troll come in February after in January, I was like, I'm doing a million and totally tanked our launch. And I could have write them in like millions done. Like it's not happening. But I knew that that wasn't the end of it. Like we had so much time to make it up. And so you just have to be committed. If your first launch doesn't go well, you're committed to doing another one. That launch that doesn't go well is not the last launch you'll ever do. If you put out something and only one person buys, let's go back to the drawing board and see if your messaging can get clearer. And so, not giving up—that's the next thing.
0: Yeah, and p- part of this year, you mentioned that you were going to sh- be very open about all of the things that you were sharing. So, what is the information that you were sharing? I know you've you've shared income numbers, uh, you know how you've done things. Maybe give us a little bit more depth on that.
2: Yeah. So in my podcast episode, I always put the numbers at the last because I think some people probably just listen to hear those, but I want them to hear the other stuff behind the scenes, the nitty gritty, the things that people don't talk about. Like how in the beginning of the year, I really struggled with being a present mom, like not being able to shut off. Like even though I was taking off the time, not being able to shut off my work brain and be able to sit on the floor and just play with my daughter. Like I struggled with that. And after that, I had so many people reach out and say, I struggle with the same thing and I feel like a bad mom. And it was just figuring out like, what can I do to be able to shut that stuff off? I talked about how I tried to get an office and then decided I hated working in an office. So now I'm back in my home. Um, I talked about how COVID has um, affected our family from an, emo- like, not from a business, but I love to travel and what that's done emotionally for me this year or If we just come up with struggles, like I talked about the troll and my grandfather dying and stuff like that, I just got all behind the scenes of the stuff that most people don't share on their Instagram highlight reel. I did it in a way that empowered other people. It wasn't just like, here's all my problems or anything. It was a way to empower people to show like, okay, this is what I struggled with. This is how I'm overcoming it. This is how my business is helping with that. And then of course, I broke down all the numbers, like expenses, taxes. I mean, like the whole shebang. My lawyer does not like
1: that I do that. But
2: (laughs) we're doing it anyway. So,
1: Oh, I've listened to those episodes, a couple of those, and they're so good. And I love that you talk about um, more of the personal side and the thinking behind your business decisions before. Like to me, that was even more interesting than the numbers. Uh, So I think you, you do that really well, the letting your walls down and transparency. Do you think that that's something that is more necessary today with a more personality driven brands, um, that are building similar businesses, or do you think it just works? It works for some people and that's great. And it might not be the right approach for others.
2: Yeah, I definitely think that not everyone should be doing it. I think the way that you do it probably matters too. Like I said, it wasn't me just like telling you all my problems. It was done in a very like, <laughs> mindful, like how is this going to empower you type of way? Um, I think some brands it probably wouldn't work for. I think some personality styles it would not work for. Um, And maybe with some audiences, I think for me and my audience, they were like looking for a breath of fresh air that showed them like, just because they're growing a business doesn't mean that they don't have any problems and showing them what that looks like. I think my audience was just really craving that. And I don't know if all audiences are craving that.
1: What has surprised you? What surprised you the most as you have really, um, you know, skyrocketed your income over the last year? Has anything surprised you where you're like, oh, I wasn't like, didn't see that coming? uh, Whether it's more, um, again, more mindset related or just uh, directly connected to an increase in income?
2: I'm having so much fun. (laughs) I think that's what surprised me is I have always had like I wouldn't say I'm a fun person. Like I'm not someone who dances around or anything like that. I'm just like, I wouldn't define myself as a super fun person, but I'm having a blast this year. Like it has just been so fun. I have done things that have scared me. I have done things that push me and challenge me. I've laughed a lot. I've cried probably more this year than I've ever cried in my life, but not just like sad, but like happy tears. And I'm just having a blast.
0: So I'm really curious, you know, as I look at what you've built in your business, you've got your service side, you've got the products that you sell. Can we talk a little bit about why it's so important to diversify a business and have more than one kind of income stream, especially in a year like 2020, where, you know, it's so easy to lose all of your clients in a particular niche, that kind of thing?
2: Yeah. So the funny thing is I have tried to always diversify my income because through high school and college, I was always working in the restaurant industry where it's very like you go in and you may have a bad night and then you don't have money for like rent. So I've, and that's when like I would pick up side jobs and stuff like that. So I've always tried to diversify my income in some way. So coming in, I just did a training on this this morning is having all your revenue in one basket is not the best Thing. And I think we've all seen that coming out of 2020 with so many people who maybe your clients were local businesses or they took a big hit and then you take a hit because you're their service provider. And so I think it's so important that we look at our business. And I like to say that there should be three revenue streams. I think your services are super important because it's quick cash injection. Like you can get people to pay you, quick cash injection. The second one is something I don't believe in passive income, but that doesn't require more of your time. So that's your leverage material, like your course or your membership. And then I also love affiliate income. And so having some type of affiliate income, even if it's like $100 a month, that $100 can make a difference. So I think if you have those three revenue streams, you're really well, because I know that we had members who had to leave our membership, when everything happened and we gracefully let them go. We paused some of their accounts, things like that. And I'm glad that I also had a course and I don't think you should go out and create a membership and a course or anything like that at the same time. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm glad that I had a course that also had payments coming in and it kind of made up for that. We didn't take a big hit, which I'm glad, but I saw too many service providers lose all their clients and they had no second stream of income coming in. And that's when I was like, man, I have to teach people like you have to have a second stream of income and hopefully a third with some affiliate income.
0: And would you also say with the three different streams of income that you would aim them at different niches? Or would you say, hey, if I'm serving, let's say the technology market, I can do uh, you know, my, my services in the tech market. I can create some kind of a leveraged product and also have affiliate income from that same niche.
2: I think that if that area lights you up, then yes, I'm big on not creating something just because you think you can sell it, but because you're excited. So I don't think your services and your course necessarily have to line up because mine didn't. I, for... It was eight months before I created a Facebook ad course, but mine was more about the business side, the inside, not the Facebook ads. And so it was not necessarily related. So I don't think those two have to line up. I do think if they do line up, then you have a little bit easier road than someone who is going in a completely different direction. And with the affiliate stuff, I think you should be looking at anything that could serve your clients or your students and figure out what those are and go all in on those. So for me, I've always loved software. Software is, especially if you're working with clients like copywriters, I you have, if you're working with like the launch industry or anything like that, like people are gonna ask you, like, what, have you heard of a good software? Do you know anything about Kajabi? Should I be using that for my landing page builder? Should I be using lead pages? And the more software you can come affiliate with, the better. So, like your email service providers, especially if you're doing email copy or our website, if you're doing website copy, like you should be an affiliate for something that you can promote to people because it's something you believe in, but also you're going to promote it and people, you're going to get paid on the back end for those.
1: I can't overlook that you have a 97% retention rate. So, this is a selfish question for me. You, you know, top advice around retention what's worked well for you, what we can apply to our own membership?
2: Yeah. So I think the first thing is like wowing your students. I always like to under promise and over deliver. So there's always something in the launches that I'm going to hold back. So I'm not going to tell them about something that I have planned up my sleeve. So for my convergence for client students, I just um, was like, oh, we finished up a launch in October. And I told them Monday, I was like, hey guys, because the refund period is also coming up, 60 days, refund period's coming up. And I was like, hey y'all. So I have a super surprise for you. Everyone's been asking about SLO funnels, how to run ads for it. And I have a workshop in January that I'm putting together for you. You're gonna get access to it for free. And so I always like to have these surprise and delights for all of my students. So they always know that something's coming up. We have a virtual conference in January and it's a paid conference But anyone who's a student of mine, they get free tickets. So I always like to surprise my students with stuff like that. But the other thing is we have an amazing follow-up system because one of the things that people do not spend enough time on is retention. They think like marketing, marketing, marketing. And for me, I just want to keep the clients I have and then focus on the marketing And so we have this amazing follow-up system. And my Janessa, she collects so many failed payments. She recovers so many people that want to leave to stay. And we just have a really good follow-up system. And it all is personalized. It's not automated, which may sound crazy to people. But we find that it works when we actually are talking to people and knowing who they are and where they're coming from. Because the worst thing to do is you have a failed payment and you get some automated message that's like your card's declined, blah, blah, blah. And then getting an automated message when Janessa can come and say like, hey, we know that you've been with us for 10 months. We saw your card failed. How can we help get this fixed? And it's personalized. We make people feel special.
1: Okay. My last question for you is what have you struggled with uh, let's say you know more recently over the last six months. I know you mentioned you're having fun. Um, so many things are going well beyond dealing with the troll. Uh, what 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 has been a struggle for you at this level where you're hitting a million dollars and you know on the outside it looks like things are great.
2: Yeah. So I think the big thing for me this year is I love in-person events like. I just, my energy feeds off there. I love building relationships. I have a really hard time sitting through a conference online, even if it's like four hours. And so this year for me, there was a point where I looked at my husband and I was like, why am I even doing this? Like, what does this serve? Because all I want to do is create memories with my family, meet people, build relationships and can't even freaking do that. And that was a point for me where I had to be like, what kind of inner work do you need to be doing right now? And I think we've probably all had these moments during COVID, like, what the heck are we doing? And so that was one for me. And it was really coming back to how can I be okay with being alone, like even if it's for 10 minutes. And so I started meditating. I'm on the Peloton all the time and just being really cautious of where our mind is going and being quick to be like, oh, that's not a good thing. Let's see how we can recognize that we're feeling that way. But then also how can we change our attitude? So now I love whenever I start to feel that I do a gratitude, 10 minute gratitude meditation. And it makes you take check of like, look at all the amazing things you have in your life. And so, um, winning often. So making sure that I'm always writing down my wins that I'm having, even if they feel small that day, um, meditation, and then just getting up and moving a little bit more.
0: Yeah. Gratitude and, and, you know, being grateful, uh, for those wins is huge. Okay. So Randy, I know that you have a new website coming up, but what else is next for you?
2: Yeah. So we actually just launched last month and it's amazing. It is 100% the most excited I've ever been about anything. And that's creating a second stream of revenue for service providers. So I get so much passion out of helping people. I didn't want to have a course or something like that. I want to have something where I could give one-on-one feedback in a group setting. And so we launched Beta to Biggie. It is an application only type of program but I'm teaching people how to do exactly what I've done with my course in membership business and how to launch four times. But one-on-one feedback for their webinar slides, their launches, all of that goodness. And I'm super excited about that. Like, I don't think I've ever been so excited about a project.
0: So that's the end of our interview with Brandy. But before we wrap up, let's go a little bit deeper on a couple of different things. So before I jump into a couple of the bullets that I've noted down in my notes, Carol, what stood out to you with the rest of this interview with Brandy?
1: Okay. Well, uh, you know, launching uh, stood out to me because I work with clients on launches. We launch frequently. So I really liked uh, Brandy's advice around launching. And uh, mostly what she shared about she doesn't change her launches dramatically from launch to launch she changes she chooses one um, aspect to change each launch so she can actually test you know did this make an improvement how how did this impact the launch rather than uh, kind of creating a new deck and a new webinar or like scrapping your sales page or starting over with emails. Uh, I think it's a really practical approach to launching and a lot less work and more focused. And she's had really great results from focusing on different aspects of her launch every time she launches.
0: Yeah, part of that too is Brandy's really dialed into the numbers. You know, she knows that if she's made a change, that it's making a, you know, 3% increase in, you know, engagement or in sales or whatever. And knowing that and being able to experiment with the different moving parts, pulling a lever here and there really helps her to improve her business over time. And so, you know, if you're able to increase a response by three percent. Uh, Every time that you do a webinar, you know, or you you try a different lever and the next time you get 5%, the the advantage that that gives you in your business over the course of a year or two years is massive. And that's one reason why she's grown her business so much from literally from zero to a million dollars. What stood out to you? So when, when she was talking about, you know, what went wrong during one of her launches, she talked about the trolls or the troll that she had. Uh, And I think that this is a really interesting problem to think about because obviously there are trolls online. Uh, You know, maybe they engage with us on social media, you know, Instagram, they might react to a photo or whatever. I, I don't know that we've had one troll, but we've definitely had trollish kinds of comments on some of the stuff that we've done. And. My response has always just kind of been to ignore it or maybe even to delete a comment. But, you know, if there's a troll that's really showing up and throwing everything off to the point where it crushes your your webinar or it kills a launch, that's that's a bigger deal. And I'm impressed with the way that she decided to move forward and and you know, deal with that on a team wide basis. Trolls are are fun. <laughs>
1: Yeah, well, I think having some type of – especially as you grow and if you are, your goal is to expand, increase your visibility, you know – Grow your list to thousands of people. You're running ads, especially if you are opening yourself up to that type of exposure. It's smart to think about the fact that, like, someone can come in and just blow up your entire launch and um, just, like, basically take money out of your pocket. And all it takes is one person. So it's something that we haven't talked a lot about on the show, but I'm glad she brought it up because it's a real thing. And it's also just smart to go into any webinar or any public event that you're hosting knowing that uh, you need to be able to handle a situation where um, someone shows up and they're just like (laughs) they're just ready to tear down the whole party or the webinar and so it's something that I'll think about in our webinars luckily we're you know we have two people so the two of us are always running them together and I think we could handle a troll pretty well on a webinar but it's just, it's just one of those weird things that we have to think about as online business owners.
0: This is probably one of those areas too where uh, comedy training maybe comes into play a little bit because comedians have to deal with hecklers all the time. People that show up at their shows and and want to, you know, show their their. Girlfriend or their partner, or whatever, that they're funnier than the comedian. And so they actually learn how to deal with it. And, and, uh, you know, I, I know we've talked about comedy training in the past on the podcast, but there's an effect or a benefit from that kind of a thing that uh, maybe we haven't thought about.
1: Okay. Well, you can, Rob, you can deal with our trolls. Yeah. Um, okay. You're the comedian. I'll be
0: in charge of the hecklers that come along. Yes. But I, I think going along with that, you know, sh- um, Randy mentioned the GIF effect, and you know that the idea that you know your audience so well that it's almost like when they read that GIF, that funny GIF or whatever, they're like, "Oh yeah, that's totally me." And I think when you do that with your audience, when you know them that well, and a troll comes along. Uh, it's much easier to dismiss the troll. You know, it's much easier to say, wait a second, you're not part of this. And I think your audience comes to your defense because, you know, they, they understand that you know who they are. Uh, you're all part of the same group. And the troll really truly is an outsider. So that's, you know, maybe something else that, that goes along with that. If you're really connected with your audience, pro, uh, trolls are probably a little bit less of a, a problem.
1: Okay, I feel like we're bringing on a bunch of trolls into our world just Possibly. by talking about trolls today. Go. So bring, bring it on. <laughs> um, okay, so also, uh, Brandy mentioned diversifying your income streams, which we have talked about. And I, you know, especially after 2020, that's so important. And I don't think it's something that we have to wait to do as copywriters and think, well, I have to just focus on my services before I start to create other income streams. It's something that you can do starting where you are today. I mean, you can create an affiliate income stream, even if it isn't huge, um, by sharing different tools with your clients and colleagues and creating those affiliate fees and exchanges and starting to collect money from that. We talk to a lot of copywriters who are creating their own products too. And so it's just something worth thinking about. I mean, I think as, as I'm thinking about it, it's like money should be coming from services, programs and products, Affiliates and also sponsorships, which we haven't really done as much with yet, but that's also an opportunity as you're building, uh, potentially building a media platform. Um, there's, you know, it takes a little bit more time to build that out, but there's also the upside of you can bring in sponsorship money too as another revenue channel.
0: Yeah. You know, we talk a lot about diversity of income streams because that adds a lot of stability to your business. It makes you you know, more flexible. But uh, when you have other income streams, you can use one income stream to fund another one. And, and Brandy mentioned that, too, that she used her services to then drive and build her her membership and, and the, the products that she was doing with her launches. And so, you know, it's it's okay to start with one, you know, if it's service income, uh, but start thinking about, okay, how can I use this now to leverage myself into a new product or, you know, some kind of an affiliate venture sponsorship or advertising on the platform that you build? Or how do you take that money and put it into other kinds of investments that will then pay you dividends and uh, grow in value? So there are lots of different ways to diversify your income. I think, Jay Abraham maybe talks about what, how you should have seven different kinds of income in every business. Uh, I think for most of us, we'd be happy if we get to three or four, but it's a really smart strategy that helps protect you against you know, losing clients, losing a, a particular income stream like what happened for so many people over the last year.
1: Yeah, it just it takes the pressure off, right? You don't feel as stuck or trapped with anything or any particular part of your business, it allows you to feel more flexible and like you can kind of endure whatever comes your way when you have those multiple revenue streams.
0: Yeah. And then I think the last thing I would touch on with what Brandy was talking about, just, you know, she was wrapping up, you know, telling us about how she shares what's going on behind the scenes in her business, how you know she's so transparent, not just about what she makes, but the struggles that she has and also how she's having fun. I think it's just, Really important to have fun in your business, to enjoy what you're doing, and you know maybe that's something that you and I need to do a little bit more as we talk about our businesses, uh, is just to share the fun stuff that we're doing, or or maybe do something fun so that we can share it in the first place. Well,
1: <laughs> oh, yeah, I was just going to say like, what? are okay, what do we do that was fun this week? I know, I know we're doing some fun things, but I think part of it she mentioned is um, when she takes a risk, she has fun. And I, I don't think everyone's wired that way, but I do think if you're drawn into this freelancer life that we've all chosen, there is something risky about that. Um, and so I have a feeling for many of us, taking a risk or challenging ourselves, doing something new and uncomfortable. Although it's terrifying, it also, once you do it, it feels fun. I know I feel like I'm having more fun in business when I'm doing something new and exciting. So I think maybe we can think about it for for the two of us at least. Um, what are we doing that's new and challenging and uncomfortable and exciting.
0: So yeah, we'll need to add to our checklist, share something fun on the next podcast, or maybe do something fun this week so we can share it on the next podcast. Yeah, we're
1: okay. We'll do that. All right. So we want to thank Brandy for sharing so much detail and information about her business path. If you want to know more about Brandy, you can find her at brandymouse.com or beta dot com, where you'll find information about her latest program. And you can listen to Brandy on her podcast, Serve, Scale, Soar, wherever you find great podcasts like the one you're listening to now.
0: And that's the end of this episode of the Copywriter Club podcast. Our intro music was composed by copywriter and songwriter Addison Rice. The outro was composed by copywriter and songwriter David Muntner. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, please visit iTunes and leave a review of the show. Or even better, think of one person who could benefit from what you've heard and email them a link to this episode to learn more about the Copywriter Accelerator, which if you're listening to when we go live today, is open today for new members. Go to thecopywriteraccelerator.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Copywriters coming together to help the world write better, copy and make more money. Kira and Ross, Copywriters Club.